Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary from the right, from Brooke Medina, and from the left, from Calvin Moore. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base, AM 560, The Answer, WIND Radio in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Our phone lines are open now at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to be a part of the program with us this evening. While this program was broadcasting last week uh, on another, uh, probably not quite as august program as this, 60 Minutes, President Biden sat down with Scott Pelley for a long-form interview. And in that interview, the first question that he was asked was about inflation. And the question about inflation that he got was, Mr. President, as you know, last Tuesday, the annual inflation rate came in at 8.3%. The stock market nosedived. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? And President Biden's response was, well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just just an inch, hardly at all. So the line that President Biden looks like he is going to be taking on inflation right now is that while it is up 8.3% year over year, uh, the annualized inflation rate, it has barely moved month to month. And that's his case that is getting better. Uh, on an issue he'd probably rather not talk about in the coming midterm elections. Uh, Brooke, I'm going to go first to you. Do you think this is an effective line for President Biden to address people's concerns about inflation? Absolutely not. It's not comforting when you're still going to the grocery store and you're paying 40% more for eggs or 30% more for milk, or you're paying lots more for your gas and you're trying to take your kids places. So sure, he might try to shirk it off as if, well, it's not getting any worse. Well, the misery's not getting any better either. So he's really missing the mark on this. And his approval numbers certainly indicate that the American public is not buying it. Calvin, same general question to you. Do you think this is an effective line from President Biden on the question of inflation, which is a, a huge issue of concern for many Americans. And if you don't, what what do you think he could be saying or doing that would be better than what he's saying or doing now? Well, uh, I'm not too far off from from Brooke on this, mostly because I think people think with their wallets. And hey, you know what? It is costing me a little bit more for these eggs. It is costing me a little bit more for this milk. It is costing me a little bit more for this gas. Uh, it doesn't matter that gas prices have nothing to do with the president. Uh, it's just, hey, what's what's coming out of my my pocket right now? And who do I perceive to be the guy in, in control of all of this? So I think the answer is going to fall flat with a lot of people. Do I think the answer is unreasonable, though? Uh, it's not a question that you ask, but I'm going to answer anyway. Uh, no, I don't I don't think it's if you're a reasonable person. I don't think that he's wrong. It's kind of like your kids in the back of the car asking, are we there yet? You just asked me that 30 seconds ago. Are we there yet? You just asked me that 30 seconds ago. We're not there yet. I'll let you know. Uh, and so when he says, hey, um, yeah, it is up 8%. It was pretty much the same spot last month. It was pretty much the same spot the month before that, we're working on it. Uh, again, if you're paying more at the at the grocery store or at the gas pump, 
that may not be comforting, but it's not untrue. Yeah, I think you you raise a good point there. And it's something that has always vexed me. The we assign a, it, it's like with sports coaching. We assign too much credit when teams win to the coach and too much blame to the coach when teams lose. It's except in this case, you know, there are a lot of things. There are things, not even a lot of things that the president can do to affect uh, what's going on in the economy with prices like this. But you're right. He can't directly affect gas prices. Uh, In fact, the last attempts by a president to do so were by Richard Nixon, and they created a whole bunch of gas shortages by having price controls put on them. So uh, clearly not the best possible option. Uh, But I think, Brooke, to to come back to why I think there's Calvin's making a good point at the end there is it's less than it's not coming down. But at least it's stopped going up, right? Isn't that the case I think he's trying to make, if perhaps inartfully? Because when you when you just see gas prices continuing to go up and up and up, there is kind of a it's kind of panic inducing, I think, where people just don't know when it's going to end. So if at least the increase seems to have stopped, it is still expensive and nobody likes that. But perhaps maybe they're settling in a little bit more to comfortability. Sure. I mean, I don't think that voters are feeling the sting as much as they were. That's very clear. They have the danger, if anything, going into the elections for the Republicans, I would say, is that voters become a little bit apathetic because they this is their new normal now, kind of like after the pandemic shutdowns and mask requirements for the new normal. So I think that's very well going to be what uh, or that is what's happening right now. But when it comes to are rising energy costs, not just gas, but energy on the whole, which is projected to rise between 30 and 50%. Biden has a lot to do with that, with the executive orders that require us to not not be able to drill in certain parts of the country or not develop other nuclear um, nuclear capabilities and things like that. So I do think that he is he plays a role in this, whether it's influence influence in Congress or through his executive orders. And that certainly has an effect on the American pocketbook, which is, again, what Calvin said, going to be what they're they have in mind when they're going into the voting booth. Calvin, could Biden help himself out here by embracing a all of the above energy policy? Uh, Politically, sure. Absolutely. Again, perception is reality for a lot of people. Hey, you know, you could do offshore drilling. You're allowing more permits for that kind of thing. Uh, Cool. The president is doing something. Now, what that may do uh, in the future, what that may do to the environment over the long haul uh, may be more problematic than the solution that people are looking for in in the meantime. So would it win him some political points? Uh, Probably, I I think, because people are looking at how much do things cost. So, I, yes, I think it would help him, um, but at what cost? What is the cost for helping yourself politically in the moment versus having a long-term view of if we do this now, what's it going to look like for us 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Is that tenable or untenable? We'll pull it back very briefly here out of that uh policy question to a political question, would it just create problems with the left flank of the Democratic Party if he were to support a policy like that? Yes. Yes, it would. Um, I also think that enough people will get in line because of the political climate that we're in right now, where winning at all costs seems to be the, uh, the, the soup du jour, so to speak. So yeah, 
people on on the left side of the aisle would definitely harangue uh, President Biden for that, but I think ultimately they would they would fall in line and figure out, okay, how do we spin this? How do we sell this to the American public? There are enough people who are clamoring for it uh, that uh, it could still turn into a win if you still had people on his side of the aisle who were more mm -hmm. ambivalent. Inflation wasn't the only big story to come out of that 60 Minutes interview that President Biden did. And one of the other stories that uh, Brooke had briefly alluded to has to do with the COVID-19 pandemic and whether or not it is over and conversation on that when we come back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. Hello. You know, these days, I'm often quoted as saying, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. People forget that I was the first technology president using the telegraph, T-mails as I like to call them, to communicate with my generals. Well, today, we are fighting a cybersecurity war, and our best defense is for folks to follow some of these tips when they're online. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Hover your cursor over links to determine the true web address. Look for misspellings and poor grammar, which are warning signs of fraud. Be suspicious of emails requesting urgent action and never give away sensitive personal information. With malware for none, with cyber protection for all, this is your humble servant, Abraham Lincoln. The central and midwestern U.S. averages more than 850 tornadoes each year. And lately, the number of floods has been rising in the region, too. So chances are, there will be more twisters and floods near here again. And between school, sports, and social lives, chances are, you won't be with your kids when it happens. Will they know what to do? Ready.gov kids has all the educational tools and information to make the conversation easy. When the time comes, chances are, they'll feel prepared, not scared. So talk with your family today. On the Beltway. So we were talking about President Biden's interview on 60 Minutes while uh, this program aired last week. And we talked about his answers on inflation. I want to get to the other big thing that he said. And it's one of those that's in keeping with the statements President Biden makes that his aides and surrogates then have to go out afterwards and start walking back. And that was being asked by Scott Pelley, a Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Is the pandemic over? President Joe Biden, the pandemic is over. The problem, he, if I correct that the problem that he is going to have with this is, yes, in many ways, I think we would all agree that the pandemic is over, that we're not living in the same state of affairs that we were in in mid-2020. But a lot of things that his administration is doing, uh, for instance, uh, quite prominently, the student loan forgiveness is predicated on this pandemic still being a crisis that's affecting people. Um, is is he kind of is President Biden now kind of caught in a difficult place where he does want to tell voters that the pandemic is over because people want to get beyond it. But then he threatens his own justification for some of the things he's doing, Brooke. 
Yeah, I, this is a politician being a politician and trying to have it both ways. Uh, we experienced the same thing here in North Carolina with our governor, Roy Cooper, who is some that some people believe he might be a 2024 possibility for president for the Dem Democratic ticket. And he has used the pandemic or the guise of the pandemic still being a thing to continue to issue executive orders and keep a state of emergency to continue to uh, pull federal funds. And Biden's doing, like you said, about the student loan forgiveness, uh, he's doing the same thing. And you just, we can't have it both ways. The pandemic is over when the data says it's over, not when Biden says it is or isn't. And I would say the data has indicated when we've looked at the death rates that it has gone precipitously down, thank God. And, uh, and that's a good thing. So it has been over for some time, I would say, to the scale that it was um, previously. Of course, we're still dealing with a lot of the the effects of it. Uh, but this is just one of those things where it, when it's politically convenient for the pandemic to be a thing, sure, it's a thing. And that's problematic because that's pay, playing politics with the taxpayers uh, who are now going to need to foot the student loan cancellation bill. I mean, it's not free. It's going to be footed by one of some of us. And so uh, it's just, it's unfortunate that it has become a political football, but nonetheless, that's uh, that's how politics rolls. Well, Calvin, I imagine you would agree, though, that it has been a political football really since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. The people on the right uh, said the pandemic was over when it was starting. So it's just kind of it's just kind of interesting here. But yeah, I mean, does does Biden lose ground by playing both sides of, of that particular coin, especially when it comes to student loan forgiveness? Uh, I don't really think that he was using the pandemic so much for student loan forgiveness that has been a long fought battle long before the pandemic came into play now student loan payments being frozen I, i'll agree with you that that was part of pandemic uh but student loan forgiveness the pandemic being used in any way shape or form to to uh to champion uh, this movement had to be probably the, the most minuscule thing I heard at all in, so in regards would, to why this was being done. I'll direct you to the um, the memo from okay. uh, the uh, was the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. So the the basis for what he says he's uh, going to use to support this student loan cancellation, really transfer to other people, uh, is the Heroes Act, which was passed after uh, 9/11. Um, people coming into hardship primarily because they were being deployed to Fallujah uh, were not going to be responsible for student loan payments they couldn't make. And uh, Office of Legal Counsel's justification was the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so it is it is a part of their legal rationale. Now there is an argument that says that uh, even you know even all of that is kind of putting a legal sheen on something that is just blatantly unconstitutional but i'm uh i'm suspecting calvin you might make the argument that this is uh perhaps i'm not, i don't think you're advocating that uh, an unconstitutional action would be good but that the larger project of student loan forgiveness is uh an important one and one he should pursue yeah yeah and and i would i, I guess i could have to i'd have to walk back my my comment there uh, based on on the memo you just read there i wasn't aware of it so uh, thank you for correcting me there. But no, I think it's still a, a hard fought battle that's been going on long before the pandemic came in into place or yeah. But either way, to your original question, I'm sorry, uh, is the pandemic over? That's going to saw off the branch that he's sitting on if he's using it as any pretense for anything. I'll give you that. 
Um, is the pandemic over? In terms of how people think about it, absolutely, it's over. Um, yeah, we we do have. I mean, again, he's in he's in my city. He was here for the North American International Auto Show in downtown Detroit. Um, people weren't wearing masks. He said that in the interview. People are walking around. This is what we mean. Uh, to be honest, most Americans are just tired of it. <laughs> most people determined, hey, it's over for me. Is the pandemic over physically? No, there's still a disease out there. I have friends who work in, in healthcare who say it's still very much a thing, but we do have quite a bit more control over it, which is what I think he should have said. He would have benefited more from, hey, guess what? The pandemic's not over. You still need to pay attention to healthcare professionals. That's the reason why we're able to be doing what we're doing here now, walking through a large space like this. People aren't wearing masks because guess what? They listened to the science. They went and got uh, they went and got their their vaccines. They went and got their boosters. So if that's what he means, which is what I took from his meaning, then yes, I do agree that the pandemic is over. Uh, I think using that those particular words didn't help him any. Brooke, do you think Eric, that this kind of go ahead? Oh, so one thing that I think is an important part of this conversation about whether or not the pandemic is over is not just the pandemic itself, but the the secondary effects of the closures. And when we look around us or when we sit at the table, work with our kids on their homework, we know that that part of it is far from over. We're still in the middle of it. That's because of all of the learning loss that took place. There's now the school board wars. There's the, of course, there's all of the housing crisis and the labor for, uh, shortage and the labor force upheaval. And so all of that, is still very much going on. So I think that is an important, an important element of the discussion that often is kind of seemed, seems to be separate from the pandemic topic, although we wouldn't be having that discussion if the pandemic weren't the first, um, the first domino to fall in this. And I think that's an important aspect that a lot of voters will be, will be thinking of in the voting booth, especially as it pertains to like local elections this November. But that wasn't the question that was asked. The question that was asked was about basically it was a health question. Is a pandemic over? You are absolutely right about secondary effects. Uh, when I go to my local restaurant and they have two two waiter two waiters or waitresses for a restaurant that seats four hundred people, that's a that's an after effect. People are having a hard time hiring people because we said go get a real job during the pandemic, and so people went and got a real job quote unquote, I'm using air quotes there, right? Um, so you've got those kinds of after effects going on. You've got supply chain issues that are going on. So the effects of the pandemic are absolutely not over. Uh, I would agree with you 100% there, Brooke. Uh, you are going to see that come out in the voting booth here in the next few months. Uh, but in terms of us getting used to it, being able to live with it, it being somewhat endemic at this point, uh, and people doing what their healthcare professionals tell them to do, I think that he's absolutely right. The pandemic is over in that respect. Calvin, let me pose this question to you then. So you have uh, this, this situation where, as you referenced, uh, you have the scientific question of, is the pandemic over? You have a political question. Um, isn't ultimately the political question that is really the one that matters? Isn't that the reason that we elect politicians? Because if you had this, if you read the guidance, uh, go back pre-COVID-19 that the Center for Disease Control puts out about mm -hmm. all kinds of things, nobody, there's nobody out there that would ever adhere to 100% of the guidance that they give because they really only have one focus, right? Preventing and controlling diseases is the only thing that they're really concerning, supposed to concern themselves with. 
the reason we elect politicians is to take in multiple sources of information, people with different point of views and top priorities and weigh all of those things. Uh, do you think that this is perhaps one of the reasons why people have gotten so exhausted with the uh, what's being said by health experts? Because it was for a long time there entirely deferential by a lot of people to what whatever the the experts said is what we're going to do without politicians really weighing other concerns like the the effects on people's lives and the economy and their livelihoods. Uh, yes, the short short answer. Uh, it's it's a political question any way you you slice it. Yes, I said it was about health. Uh, answering the question, a president answering any question is going to be inherently political. Uh, people are going to be thinking about like what Brooke said, the the after effects and, and and so on and so forth there. But if I if I understand your if I take your if I understand your question, and let's, I'm assuming that I do. So let's see if I answer the right question. Um, I think when it when it comes to this, you know what that's that's one I'm going to need to think on a little bit harder. That's fine. I, I don't I don't have an answer right in the middle in the moment. No, that's that that's fair, Brooke. Do you? Um... Do you think that COVID and the pandemic is still going to be a top mind issue for voters when we get to November? Based on our polling, so I work at the John Locke Foundation, we do a, a regular statewide poll here in North Carolina, which is known as a swing state. It is not a top issue anymore. It certainly is important, but it is not what's driving voters to the voting booth this go around. It is going to be the economy, the economy, the economy. So the uh, economy is what we were just discussing, and I, this is the problem, I think, with education and the economy is that you can all draw them back to COVID in some way. Why are we talking about the economy in this way? Well, because of a lot of choices that people made that had effects on the economy back in 2020. So we're going to need more time to really sort that out. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Turn up the radio and discover all that Illinois has to offer. Find your road trip at enjoyillinois.com. Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Reminder again that our phone lines are open 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. 
to join us for the program. And this is the part of the program where we allow our guests to introduce themselves. And we'll start this week, I suppose, with me, because I'm not your regular host. I am not Bruce Dumont. Uh, I'm Eric Cohn. I am the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm the executive producer of our podcast network and the host of our weekly roundtable conversation, Acton Unwind, which you can find wherever you find good podcasts. And I'm the associate producer of a documentary film, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, a story about the uh, Hong Kong newspaper publisher, Jimmy Lai, who is currently imprisoned by the Chinese Communist Party. Go to the hongkongermovie.com to find out how you can see that. Let's go to Brooke Medina. Muted. Thank you, Eric. And before I introduce myself, I just want to second that plug for the Hong Konger. I recently watched it last month and it was an incredible documentary, very, very moving and an important story, especially if you value freedom across this world, not just here in the United States. It's really good. So I'm Brooke Medina. I'm the Vice President of Communications at the John Locke Foundation, which is a state-based think tank in Raleigh, North Carolina. So we advocate for free markets and limited government. Hence, I'm on the right today and always am actually because I'm right. And <laughs> I have four children and uh, my husband and I have been married for many, many years. He's a retired soldier and we love living here in Raleigh. So if you're considering a move, you're listening right now, and you're looking for a new place to call home, I would recommend Raleigh to you. Calvin Moore. Well, uh, I cannot yet recommend the Hong Konger because I have not seen it, but I have been told that I will be able to uh, check out a copy of it. So I will, uh, if I'm ever invited back and you were uh, hosting again, Eric, I will uh, I will definitely plug the movie then. Uh, but uh, my name is Calvin Moore. I'm the host of the What's Left to Say podcast. I've always kind of been the inquisitive member, skeptical member of my family. And so I'm consistently pushing the boundaries of accepted conventions. Uh, that's uh, where my show comes in. I get to bring on people who have uh, very different points of view uh, to discuss things that they uh, they disagree with, because I think that uh, civil discussion has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. So I love uh, things like this. Uh, that's actually how I met Brooke, which is great. And that's actually how I ended up on this show. Uh, so thanks so much for having me tonight. Uh, really, uh, really happy to be here. And you both also participate on a uh, joint podcast called Are We Right? Brooke, why don't you talk a little bit about that briefly? Yeah, so Are We Right is a podcast where there are four of us and we're just young professionals that really are quite inquisitive. We have a lot of questions about some of the hot button issues of the day, whether it's abortion, whether it's a religious topic, uh, student loan forgiveness. And we just ask at the end of each show, are we right? Calvin and I usually are on opposite sides of this. And so we love to get in a, a friendly debate. We are still friends though. He might get a Christmas card this year, but you can find that on iTunes, uh, Spotify, as well as just going on Twitter and checking out, are we right? You know, Calvin, you, you said what motivated you to get into podcasting is this idea that uh, civil conversation has uh, gone the way of the dodo. Why do you think that is? I mean, there's we have so many explanations for why we're so polarized and at each other's throats. What's yours? Um, honestly, kind of the reason I got into it is because people are aggressively uninformed. I'm sure you can see this in the echo chamber of social media but when i got into college when i got to college 
I remember sitting down at a table and I, I went to a religious college and all these kids were arguing their particular religious tradition, but none of them knew what they were talking about. None of them. Um, they just knew what they'd been taught. And so I said, you know, why don't we get some people who work in these religious spaces to come in and sit down and disagree over these finer points of theology is what we call it for those of the listeners who may not um, follow that kind of stuff. Um, but having pastors and priests and, and, and whatnot come in and talk about those things that stuck with me after college. And I started to notice it also in the political sphere. There were just people who were just aggressively speaking past each other. They got their talking points either from MSNBC or Fox News and weren't actually looking at the other sides. So having people who were informed from those spaces come in and sit down and talk with each other has kind of been uh, a, a labor of love for me. Brooke, how much do you think that this, uh, the role of modern media is is a culprit here? You know, Calvin mentioned you, you have people that tune into Fox News and they'll only tune into Fox News. People tune into MSNBC and they'll only tune into MSNBC. Um, certainly you have people who could make credible arguments that when you go back to when we had only three networks, uh, you had Walter Cronkite signing off news broadcasts saying, and that's the way it is, as if everything he just spoke was a metaphysical certainty as opposed to being, this is what we thought were important, or this is what we could have put in front of you today, or these are the decisions that we made. Now that you have the lack of broadcasting, you have narrow casting and that people are going for a small audience, how culpable do you think the media is in creating the uh, just difficult and uh, political circumstances where we are at each other's throats? Yeah, so I am maybe going to give an unpopular answer to this. And I think the media is just a symptom of the problem. I don't think they're driving the problem. I think that begins, like Solzhenitsyn said, that's part of the dividing line in every human heart is this desire to be tribal, to dehumanize others. And it's something that we all contend with. Now, the media, though, as someone who works with media on a regular basis, is uh, is driven by what we call clickbait. So they create these bombastic headlines. They are quite fine with people to stay in their silos or to have keyboard courage and lob angry tweets at one another all day um, because that gives them more content to deal with and it drives up engagement. And those are the metrics that they're looking at to convince advertisers that they want to advertise on their platform. So that's how it works. So they are riding this wave of human brokenness and um, inhuman sinfulness and they are capitalizing on it which is absolutely abhorrent and it's wrong. Uh, but again, I don't think it starts with the media. I think it starts with each and every one of us and what kind of consumer we're going to be as well as what kind of person we're going to be even online. I'm monitoring the Facebook comments on this. I appreciate that there are folks that are watching this right now who come from a different political persuasion than I do. And you're chiming in and you're sharing your own perspectives or uh, maybe you disagree with Calvin or Eric as well, but it's just, it's nice to be able to have a civil dialogue though and discuss these things because that's how, how things are going to change. We can't rely on, we can't rely on um, info wars to do that for us, of course. So media here is perhaps a good quick transition to uh, a, what I think is mostly a media story. And that is you had a lawsuit filed by 
New York Attorney General Letitia James, a civil suit filed against Donald Trump, against his children, against his company, uh, seeking about $250 million in damages for uh, him misrepresenting the value of his New York City real estate, uh, which if anybody knows anything about New York City real estate, that is one of the most unshocking allegations that could be made against anybody involved in New York real estate is that they are misrepresenting perhaps its true value. But I couldn't help but see the immediate reactions from um, certain elements of the left who immediately went back to the the walls are closing in on Donald Trump narrative. Uh, Calvin, do you think people on the left who are immediately jumping to that as their interpretation here are setting themselves up for disappointment again because a civil suit is could end in financial damages, but not going to end up in Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, it's like he's slippery, what, more slippery than a than a greased pig. Is that the, that is that the southern <laughs> saying? Is that is that right there, Brooke? I don't know. Um, I I don't foresee this being, uh, the the smoking gun. I mean, I mean two weeks ago it was the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Today it's uh, the the civil suit that's been brought by the the New York AG. So no, I don't think that it's going to to give you Donald Trump in handcuffs. In, in an orange jumpsuit being, you know, carted off to, to federal prison. Uh, I do think it's people taking glee at him getting one-upped yet again. I don't think the walls are closing in the way they, uh, that a lot of people on my side of the aisle uh, think that it is. That if being Brooke, said, that being ahead. said, uh, if I did anything like what he's being charged with, uh, I would be going to prison. So... I've got comments about that, but that's for another show entirely. Well, yeah, well, I mean, we may very well get to that. But the question, uh, Brooke, that I want to go to you with is Letitia James, just after the suit was filed, sent out a fundraising email, the subject line of which was, guess who's back in the news? Uh, which is interesting because that the answer to that could be either Donald Trump or her, depending on how you want to view it. Um, is this really anything more than? Is it driven by anything more than politics, or do you think Letitia James does have a general concern for the uh, citizens and taxpayers of New York? Look, I don't want to impugn motives upon Attorney, Attorney General James, so that's between her and God, but I would say it is always fortuitous when politicians and elected officials decide to immediately issue fundraising emails after they do these uh, the, these heroic acts to satisfy their side. She ran on this particular topic. She said she was going to go after Trump when she was running for this office. So it's not surprising that she used this powerful law in New York to be able to do it. This, uh, this uh, statute has been in place for quite some time and they have used it many, many times. Uh, so Trump is certainly not the first one to be subjected to it or held against it. Um, but to me, the less Trump is in the news, the better. If we ignore him, maybe he will stop doing what he's doing and he'll go away. So I don't well, know. This is certainly, <laughs> I would think this has been what Letitia James wants is Donald Trump in the news because that is, uh, it is a reminder to voters that did not want him back in the presidency that he is still lurking out there. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway.
stem is precise, no margin for error. Dare to forget that. Dare to have fun with it. Get weird with it. Dare to send those old stem theories flying past the neighbor's house into outer space. Dare to program something internet-breaking, record-breaking. Dare to blow their minds. Dare to learn the difference between sedimentary and metamorphic rock. Go find those rocks. Dare to keep daring. Dare to STEM. Check out She Can STEM to get started. With instant acceleration, electric cars are more fun to drive and more affordable than ever. Electric cars are here. Plug in to the present. Back on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. We've got a a chat uh, while we are in the commercial breaks. And Calvin, you said uh, something in reaction to what Brooke had said in her comments about wanting uh, how Donald Trump may disappear from political life, that if he's out of the news, uh, almost like a plant, if it's denied sunlight, that it'll just kind of wither and die. Uh, and your comment was that uh, that's not how bad things go away. So the, the question <laughs> I want to pose to you is... If that is your perspective, that you, I'm going to presume, as our guest from the left, that uh, it would be your preference if Donald Trump was uh, neither the next president of the United States nor a, a fixture in modern American political life, what is the most efficacious way to make that happen? Um, I'm not sure what the most efficacious way is, but but Brooke said, you know, I wish we'd if we just stopped talking about him, he would go away. My response to that was, that's not how, that's not how bad things go away. It's kind of like ignoring the bills that are in your, uh, in your, or your mailbox. Like bills are bad. I don't like paying money to other people, but if you just stop paying attention to them, guess what? Things rack up. So I, when it comes to, to someone like Donald Trump, you know, if we just stop ignoring him, I think people are looking at that, looking at Donald Trump almost like a child. Like if you don't pay attention to the kid who's paying a temp, you know, you know, having a temper tantrum, they'll get over it and they'll just go do something else. Right. Like mom's not listening. Dad's not listening. I'm just going to go play with my my, my toys and my blocks. Um, so if you take this this view that Donald Trump is a child, then then sure, maybe he'll just go away if you if you ignore him. Donald Trump is not a child as much as he may act like one. Uh, he is a very shrewd political actor, probably not as shrewd as a, uh, as a DeSantis, which I, I believe we'll be talking about him a little bit later. Um, but the man knows what he's doing uh, and the man wants to stay in the news. But I think taking the perspective of, well, since he wants to stay in the news, let's keep him out of the news is not going to it's not going to work. It's not going to keep him from causing the damage that he has caused, uh, wants to cause, uh, and will probably still continue to cause in the future. Well, and I would say that to our last segment and the point about the attorney general, she was fundraising off of him. They want him in the news as well because that's how they make money and that's how they run their campaigns. I see it on the left and the right. They foment this outrage and Donald Trump is definitely that one person that so many Democrats can 
you know, point their fingers at as the destroyer of the American Republic as we know it. Um, and so they're able to garner support because they're able to generate this fear and this anger. And it happens on both sides. And I think that that is one of the reasons why I think he should just quietly exit the stage and enjoy his sunset years with his family is because this is actually fueling his opposition as well. Well, sure. I mean, both, side, both sides do it, Brooke, for sure. And I don't disagree with you on that. Um, if you get a win, take the win. I mean, I, I'm not going to fault the the New York AG for taking the win that she's got here. Let's do it. And if it's connected to Donald Trump, take it, whatever. Uh, I expect Republicans to do the same thing. Hey, you know what? We won the day. We won the news cycle on this. Um, that being said, I still think that if someone is caught doing something wrong and it's newsworthy. I'm not going to tell the press, which is what the fourth estate here in the United States. Um, hey, don't report on that because we just want this guy to quietly slink off into the darkness. Anything that's done, the darkness is going to be brought to light. So let's just keep shining light on it as long as we can to make sure that we erode the man's power. Uh, just not talking about him is not going to all of a sudden make that base that the Republican Party has that he appeals to go away. Now, Calvin, you had said earlier that, uh, you know, with regard to some of the things that Trump has alleged to have done, that if you had committed similar acts, that you would be going to prison. I think perhaps the clearest place we could see this is uh, if we take on the face the accusations about the mishandling of classified information. We have plenty of examples of people who have been prosecuted who have gone to prison for all of that. Um, do you think that a question of whether or not, because of the political implications, whether or not it is advisable to try to bring a case like that against a former president is something that should be considered by the attorney general, even if you're correct and the Joe Schmo who did the same thing would be tried and go to prison? Yes, I think that you should if we, if america is a land of laws right if we are a nation of law and order which is what uh donald trump continued to say throughout his campaign for the presidency in 2016 and again in 2020 uh, but if we believe that as a nation regardless of whether trump believes it or not if we believe that as a nation i understand the hey we don't want to send a former head of state to prison because what message is that going to send to all the other nations that we are working with. But let's be honest, other nations around the world have prosecuted and sent their world leaders to prison for doing things that are wrong, illegal, and immoral. So uh, maybe Donald Trump is the first person that we do that with. Probably not going to happen because the, the conversation around it seems to mostly be about, we can't do that. How would it look to the rest of the watching world for the most powerful nation in the world to send their their former head of state to prison well if, if brooke answers very briefly there's a reason that president ford pardoned uh richard nixon is because of what it would put the country through i mean do, do you think that a similar kind of concern is going to exist here but without the person in a place to spare donald trump if he were to be federally prosecuted absolutely uh, I mean, I, uh, oh go ahead good i think Honestly, at this point in time, it is just so much back and forth and partisanship. Uh, I do think there needs to be uh, there needs to be a uh, 
a, a way in which we actually just move forward. We move past all of the finger pointing over the past six years. And we move forward. I do think we need to hold people to the law, including the highest leaders of our land. And so I don't believe that he should be exonerated from anything if he's actually guilty of the, the crimes that he's accused of. So um, I believe in the rule of law, no matter what, regardless of who it is. Uh, but I would like it to be swift and let's yep. move on. Coming up in hour number two, we mentioned we'd get to Ron DeSantis and we will, Eric Cohn, filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. When you adopt a shelter pet, you discover all the things that make them unique. And your mother and I am totally a hot person. Right, guys? Thanks for being honest. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Dallas, St. Louis, Nashville, Tuscaloosa. All major cities to feel the destruction caused by a direct hit from a tornado. Is Chicago next? It's not a question of if, but when. And the clock is ticking. Learn what to do now at ready.illinois.gov to become Tornado Ready. Type 2 diabetes can have a big impact on your life, but how can it be prevented? Well, the first step is knowing if you have prediabetes, a serious medical condition that puts you at high risk for type 2 diabetes. One in three American adults has prediabetes, but more than 80% don't know they have it. The good news is, prediabetes can be reversed, and for many people, healthy changes in their daily routine can make a big difference. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. We are back with our number two, Eric Cohn, filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. And we want you to be a part of the program with us. Give us a call at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. And for anybody out there who is uh, dedicatedly listening to this program and ignoring all other things going on in the world, I want to give you the update that I know you've been waiting for. No, Aaron Judge has not hit his 61st home run of the season yet, but the game is still going on. So you will have time, hopefully, after this program is over to catch uh, that moment of history. But where I want to go now is, well, I want to go, I guess, to Texas and then to Florida and then to Martha's Vineyard because I want to talk about what Ron DeSantis, uh, as well as other governors, have been doing in taking people who are migrants who are coming across the border, the southern border, and moving them uh, to different places around the country. Now, this is something that governors have been doing. So if you go look at what Doug Ducey in Arizona does, he has been doing programs like this where they send busloads of migrants to different places around the country. Uh, the, the difference being between what uh, Ducey has done 
and what Abbott has done. And then, of course, Ron DeSantis taking it, I think, to a different level is Ducey is working with the places that they're arriving and social service providers there ahead of time. Uh, you get this new wave now of Greg Abbott first sending uh, busloads of migrants to to Washington, D.C., to Chicago, uh, unloading a bus right in front of the vice president's house in Washington, D.C., uh, to make a political statement. And then you have Ron DeSantis taking it to another level by facilitating the transport of a group of Venezuelan migrants from Texas through florida and then to martha's vineyard the tony estate up there in massachusetts uh let's take it from this perspective first brooke is this an effective way of bringing attention to what i think we would i assume we'll all agree and anyone feel free to disagree with this if they do a crisis on the border of people coming over it is this an effective and is this a good way of bringing attention to that I would say it depends on how one defines effective. It is a PR stunt. Um, some would say it's abhorrent, and others would say that this is something that DeSantis is doing to bolster his base ahead of his election. Uh, so effective is a very elusive word, and it depends on who we're asking. I would say, first and foremost, I would be thinking about the immigrants who are coming here these are asylum seekers. These are people they can't claim refugee status because they're coming from Venezuela. So they have to enter the country illegally, but it's so that they can ask for asylum. So to accuse them who are escaping a brutal and violent situation as part of the, the actors in this PR stunt, it breaks my heart. It's, it's horrible to see it. Um, so in my mind as a voter, I'm, it's not effective, but he's not on my ballot. Um, but I think that for the Floridian voters who are looking to cast their ballots this November, this is something that I would say is a red meat thing for them, that it is going to bolster his, his base. Calvin, is there any good political utility to this? And I think that there is a, there certainly is a situation at the border that I think people make a strong argument has not been receiving the attention that it deserves. And now this story has been in the conversation for the last couple of weeks. Is that a win for perhaps not just the political interests of Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, but also for drawing more attention to an important issue? Um, I think it's a win with people who are uninformed. That, that's who I think it's a win with. Again, you know, the, the, the group of people that I said that if you stop talking about Trump, they're not just going to go away. I think that that's the people whom DeSantis is uh, actually trying to, to kind of garner favor with. I mean, let's be honest. DeSantis doesn't even have uh, the asylum seekers. He got them from Texas, right? And it's to compete with Greg Abbott, who is ostensibly his biggest co uh, competition for the, you know, the 2024 nomination, assuming that Trump is, you know, buried under all the legal drama that, that he's dealing right now so that he can't actually run. Um, so I, I think that you're playing, I think he wins with people who think, oh, these people are coming in from Cuba or, hey, Ven Venezuela is at the tip of, of Florida. It's, it's for uninformed voters that he's winning with, I think. 
because it's really just a back and forth between him and Greg Abbott to see who's going to get that 2024 nomination if, again, if Trump is not winning. But you're playing dice, as uh, as Brooke was saying, he or she and I are in agreement. Uh, you're playing dice with real people's lives. Again, people are coming in from Venezuela. The United States has no diplomatic ties with them, right? So they have to come in illegally to get that asylum status. And he is lying to the people. That's the big thing about this. Ron DeSantis, which kind of makes him very different than the other governors, lied to people to get them on buses, to get them on a plane, to get them to fly to Martha's Vineyard. And it kind of backfired because the people on Martha's Vineyard, even though they didn't know they were coming, were humane to these people who were seeking asylum, gave them food, gave them shelter, gave them clothing. They're working on getting them jobs and trying to figure out how to do the asylum seeking status uh, in their state. So DeSantis is trying to make a point. The people of Martha's Vineyard end up, you know, being good, decent human beings. But then DeSantis turns around and says, hey, it was a victory, right? Yeah, let, so let, let, them, let them deal with it. We're playing dice with the lives of real people. And I think yeah, let's. Let's examine that for a second, because let's set aside the Ron DeSantis part of this and just go back to what Greg Abbott, Doug Ducey are doing. Um, the is, is Abbott, I, I would agree, is probably doing this in a way to be provocative as well. Right. He's not doing what Ducey has done in terms of working ahead right. of time with people. He's just sending them directly to Chicago and trying to elicit a panic when they all arrive in, in Chicago. Uh, but from the perspective of the migrants, uh, the interviews that I have seen with them, they're quite happy to get further into the country, to get out of the places right around the border where they entered and were originally detained, uh, which is why in the, the podcast that I host uh, for the Acton Institute, we talked about this last Monday. And you know, it's the I can't really find again setting the DeSantis part of it aside. Um, you know, I can't find the person who's really been wronged here, and yet I can't get this past the feeling that this is just kind of gross. I, yeah, I think I, that, let, let me let me jump in on that. Um, to to your point, yes, I've I've heard several stories where people are like, "Hey, actually, I'm kind of gra grateful to to Abbott that I got sent here because I ended up getting a job later on." And blah blah blah. That's fine. Um, the ends do not justify the means, right? If we're just talking basic ethics, doing something wrong to other people, even if it works out for those people, does not make it okay. That's, that's my bottom line on this. It's absolutely wrong what these governors are doing because the reason that they're doing it is to make a political point. They're playing with the lives of human beings and just because it worked out, for those human beings doesn't automatically make what you did right. You were doing it to own the libs. You were doing it to, you know, make these people go not in my backyard and, and really realize what kind of problem it is. But these are people who are escaping persecution. They are escaping crime. They are there's also another, there's also another element of this conversation that I want to get to, which we will get to when we are back in a moment on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. this space gave me. We've never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom having that taken away from them. 
I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oakbrook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I owe freedom my life. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont, Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce this week. And what to go to the phones. Let's go to Brian in Albuquerque. Brian, thanks for listening. Hey, good evening. Uh, first off, I noticed a similarity between Trump and DeSantis. They both have a speaking style that reminds me of a snotty teenage girl. And it's, it's something they really have in common. You know, it's, it's their outlook on life and their attitude. And then I want to comment also, you know, I spent my life working construction around Chicagoland, so I've dealt with illegal immigrants all my life. And I always love when Republicans like to beat the drum on illegal immigration, but they never seem to focus on all the American employers that hire them. Those people get a pass. And uh, I'm familiar with uh, how accounting works in most businesses. And most of these employers that hire the illegal immigrants are committing 
tax fraud, financial fraud. So if, you, if the Republicans want to beat the drum on the illegal immigrants entering the United States, let's talk about all the American employers that want to hire them and do. That's my comment. Well, go back to, uh, Brian, thanks for the call. If you want to go back to, we were talking about earlier in the program, the lawsuit that Letitia James has filed against Donald Trump for his practices in New York City, something that's not included, but uh, did happen in New York in Trump-related projects is illegal immigrant labor being used on those projects. It happened, does happen all the time. Um, but what I want to get to, and and thanks for the call, because it's, a, I think, a good segue to that, is we see these attempts from DeSantis and from Abbott to bring attention to a crisis at the border. But the one thing that I don't hear from either of them, nor do I think I really hear from just about anybody out there, is, well, what do we do about it? And not just in a sense of, you know, a three-letter slogan is an answer of, we'll build a wall. What, what do we do to address the incentives that actually attract people to want to come here illegally? You, know, you can look this up, uh, go online and search for it. Reason Magazine did a really good infographic a number of years ago that explains when people say, get in line. If you are an unskilled laborer uh, from Mexico or Central or South America, the wait time is about 125 years when there's no possible possibility of being able to come here legally, then you do get a flood of people who come here illegally because the chance of improving their lives is still so much more attractive to them. Brooke, do you think, is this just an issue that we're going to have to suffer with for a long time until it gets, I suppose, much worse than it currently is? Because it still seems more valuable to both Republicans and Democrats to have it as an issue to beat the other people with than to actually try to work on solving solving it somehow. Yeah, it is a political football, kind of like COVID uh, eventually became. And it's, it's heartbreaking because these are real men, women, and children who are trying to make just a better life for their families. And yet back and forth, back and forth, Congress has yet to actually enact real meaningful immigration reform so we the people as long as we're tolerating this and feeding into this drama um and just kind of cheering on our side rather than holding them accountable this is going to continue to happen just anecdotally i mean my brother-in-law is an immigrant my father-in-law is an immigrant from south america watching them navigate the immigration system in the united states is shameful it's awful and Let's just, I mean, we all realize there's a labor shortage. We have a birth dearth when uh, Americans are at the low replacement birth rate. And yet we continue to expand the welfare state. We continue to grow government spending. Well, how are we going to pay for all of this? We continue, if we limit immigration, like I know some folks on the right are talking about, uh, we're not even going to have the tax base to be able to do this. We're just going to have to drive up taxes on everyday Americans that are currently here. So there's an economic reason, but there's also just a human reason that I think we need to be serious about immigration reform. Uh, I don't disagree with securing the border. I think that's important. But I also think then let's sure as heck make a bigger door. Hey, Callan, I, I can't get past to what one, I think one of the interesting issues is here, that one of the things that I see that gave rise to Donald Trump in the Republican Party was the Republican base's frustration with attempts 
at something called comprehensive immigration reform. And you can certainly debate the tenets of the compromises that were being worked out, but it would certainly seem to suggest that it is just not an issue that there's an appetite for anybody to really work on and solve these problems. Because again, I guess I have posed to you generally the same question. Is is there just no incentive beyond having this issue to beat the other side with at this point? Uh, from a political standpoint, I, I don't think there's any, there's no winning by offering a solution for either side. There's just not. Um, from a human standpoint, I think there's absolutely a, a win in trying to figure out how do we how do we make it so that more human flourishing can happen these people are running from this situation we have room for those people and they can have a life that would be better than where they came from how do we make it easier for them to come in rather than more difficult but we live in a country where the first uh, immigration policy and uh, foreign policy was the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? So we have to grapple with the point of view that America has had for a very, very, very long time, which has really been once, once it was quote unquote taken over, uh, being very anti-immigrant, right? We talked about uh, you know people hiring. Illegal immigrants. I don't like using the word illegal immigrant because illegal immigrant uh, has this kind of connotation that someone's doing something wrong. There's a criminal element, which makes it very easy for a DeSantis or a Trump to talk about the criminal element that comes in that we should talk about. That that does happen. Um, but to criminalize all people is like saying all black people are a certain way or all uh, Hispanic people are a certain way or all insert the other person is is a certain way um i think that there is no incentive for either side to fix it politically but i think there is an incentive as a country as a nation to fix it there is nothing more difficult though to navigate than the number one u.s tax code number two uh immigration those are the two most difficult things to navigate and i don't think that people are committed to expending the energy that it is going to take and the bandwidth that is going to take to actually solve the problem that's in front of us it's easier for politicians to get in and say hey i, got, I just gotta run again i'm gonna run on fear-mongering or and xenophobia or welcoming the immigrant um than it is to actually fix the the broken immigration system that we find ourselves in and those two complicated systems that you referenced, you get cottage industries that spring up around them out of the Absolutely. complication. We have people who help, especially the very wealthy, navigate the tax code to their benefit. And you have people who help traffic and transport people from different places across the border into the United States. And uh, you can certainly make arguments for the problems that exist with both of those. I want to go back to the phones. I want to go to John in McHenry County. John, go ahead. One. I was listening to the comments earlier about the governors, and I kind of like to take the governors out of this for a minute, because something that's often overlooked is what's happening with the city of El Paso, Texas. And here you have the city council of El Paso sending 
migrants to New York City. This is not part of Governor Abbott's Operation Lone Star. It's completely separate. And I guess the you're seeing a city, a border city, the largest on the border, overrun with the migrants. And, of course, because the bulk of Venezuela, they can't be deported and they can't be returned to Mexico. So I'm curious what the all of you all think. Why is that being left out? Why are we focusing so much on DeSantis, Abbott, Ducey, and now Gavin Newsom has been speaking out against us in Austin this week, just recently, and maybe just uh, why are we forgetting about El Paso? Thanks very much for the call. Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I, go... I live, I live Calvin, in Roseville, ahead. Michigan. I, I live in Roseville, Michigan. Um, so I don't know. I, I know what's going on with the school board in my area. I know what's going on with the trash pickup in my area. So I like the question because you're talking about hyper-local politics. El Paso happens to be a lot bigger than a lot of places. Like where I live, I don't have 800,000-plus people living in my area. You say overrun. I do want to know what overrun looks like in El Paso because I live next to Canada. Canada is a border that no one is freaking out about. Like I just go back and forth to Canada, no problem. People come from Canada, no problem. So when you say, hey, El Paso, why don't you think about El Paso? I'm not, I'm not in Texas. So I, I want to grant your question, but I don't know what overrun looks like either. Do you mean, hey, 20 people came across the border today? Or do you mean 3,000 people came across the border today? And, and what are the, what's the infrastructure that's in place to help them? So I think your question is good, but I think the reason people don't consider it is because we're not there. We don't know what it looks like on the ground where you are, and your perspective is helpful in that way. So help help me understand. Are, is he still on the line? I don't know how this all works. Yeah, I think we're we're coming up against a, a hard break. So uh, okay. I, I I will say that the the number of encounters that Border Patrol agents are having this year are. Uh, much, much higher than they have been in previous years. Uh, so there is an element, and not specific necessarily to El Paso, Texas here, but there certainly is uh, an element of more people coming across the border right now than have been in uh, the previous couple of years. We'll get into that more on the other side of the break. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. 
It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We're back on Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce this week. Um, before we go to our next caller, I, I, one other point on the uh, what our previous caller, John in McHenry County, had said about why there isn't the attention to El Paso that there is to other places, which is I think it's probably similar to the Arizona story. We're not talking about Doug Ducey because he's working with the places these migrants are being sent in advance. He's not doing it for the purpose of trying to draw as much attention to it as possible, which I just think we can all be honest that that is what Greg Abbott is trying to do. That is what Ron DeSantis is trying to do, which is why I think it's interesting to ask the question of, you know, as Calvin said, the ends don't justify the means in, in politics. Sadly, often that is an argument that is made that uh, if it does bring attention to this important issue, well, then it's worth what we did as a uh, as this effort that it did involve people's lives. So I think that's the interesting and important part of the question. Let's go to David calling from San Francisco. David, you're on Beyond the Beltway. Um, and I'm just trying to remember uh, when Jesus was born. You remember he was uh, he was born on the run. He was an immigrant. He was an illegal immigrant, and um, he had to go into hiding uh, as a baby uh, in Egypt because he would have been killed. And uh, it's so pitiful to hear these fake Christians uh, trying to make sure that no uh, no creature of God can cross an imaginary border. Uh, uh, otherwise, there's going to have to be a whole industry to punish them. And what makes it worse, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was during Ronald Reagan or even before when they were putting together NAFTA, uh, 
and NAFTA was going to be a happy family of Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And we were going to drop borders. We were going to make it easier to manufacture on all sides of the border so that uh, it would increase the standard of living in all three countries, and we would become a, a greater uh, nation because of it. And obviously, these bigots are, are cashing in on creating a, a border uh, where you have to pay uh, a, a, an employer uh, like Foster Farms, for example, up in um, Minnesota about 20 years ago, had 20 thousand uh, uh, ice they had a raid that captured 20,000 people and sent them all home uh, and they of course didn't catch their pay they worked for a week or few at uh, at foster farms and when they got uh, raided by ice foster farms didn't have to pay them and then it turned out that foster farms was actually the uh, the coyote that was bringing them across the border so they would pay Foster Farms to have the uh, right to get a job up in Minnesota. Then Foster Farms right. would take their tens of thousands of dollars and then call ICE on themselves and not have to pay them. So it David, I, I want to pause on this because I want to come back to ask you a question about something that you said earlier in your call, which was um, about these uh, imaginary borders, I believe was the term that you used. Should we have an orderly process somehow for people who want to come to this country? Well, God knows. These borders are uh, figments of humans. And the sections of the earth, if you start thinking about global warming, creating heat waves and droughts and plagues and blights, uh, people have got to travel in order to survive. If you're living in a section of uh, Central America that's going through a drought uh, and there's no water, and then it turns out that uh, Nestle's has bought up the water rights, and so it's against the law to actually uh, use the water of God's green earth without having to pay Nestle's for it. Uh, okay. All right, the- David, David, thank you. I think we're, we're, we're going a lot of different places here. I want to try to uh, bring it back, but thank you for your call. I do want to Calvin, I do want to go to you because I'm particularly the um, the the Christian part of it. You had something you wanted to offer. Yeah, no, no. <clears throat> this is where a totally useless uh, uh, religion degree comes in handy. Uh, so, well, I, hey, I see uh, your entirely useless it, re- uh, religion degree and match you my uh, mildly useless music degree. So here, there, there you go. go. Well, well, thank you for de- uh, uh, thank you Biden for the uh, the the forgiveness right. on, on the loan, which is not really going to get me anywhere. But anyway, um, no, I, just in in terms of uh, and I, I I've already missed the guy's name, and I, I'm sorry about that, but. Um, just in terms of like he was talking about Jesus and being an illegal immigrant, and and I know that that plays well, but we don't know that from a religious standpoint, we don't know that he could have passed it. Jesus fleeing from Herod, I get that killing all the babies. Um, we don't know that Egypt didn't have a robust immigration system at that point. We don't know. We know that Jesus was an immigrant. We don't know that he was an illegal immigrant. So I think that that can go, either side can use that for their argument, which is to put, put that forward. Um, but when it comes to this idea of permeable borders, NAFTA, let's just, just get rid of borders, open borders, all that stuff, um, 
I want to nip that in the bud right now because that is not what the majority of progressive or uh, politically left-leaning people are talking about. We're not talking about getting rid of our borders. Borders make nations. They just do. We're more concerned about how do we make it easier for people to have access to our country? How do we make it less burdensome for people to have access to this nation and opportunities that they might not have where they're coming from? So I just wanted to comment on that real quick, not to take anything away from having the spirit of Jesus or Christ inside of you, um, but I don't want to overstate the case from a religious point of view. There we go. Fair enough. I want to go, uh, we were just talking about El Paso, so why don't we go right now to Rodrigo, who is in El Paso, who is on the line. Rodrigo, you're on Beyond the Beltway. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, congratulations for your program. One quick point that I haven't heard anyone comment. Uh, it was commented that businesses have hired illegal um, immigrants forever here in the United States and basically create a sub-economy. They're not audited or uh, the law's not enforced because we need these immigrants to work the fields. Back in the 40s and 50s, we had a bracero program that worked very well where we knew who the immigrants were, they were vetted and their health, and we knew exactly who they were. They would work and go back to their country of origin. That was uh, pretty much destroyed by the unions in the United States and we haven't had that program since. So I think that would be a very good solution, uh, and we would know exactly who these people are that are coming to our country. Right now, it is completely out of control here in El Paso. The previous administration had it right when they negotiated with Mexico um, <clears throat> to do things under control. Right now, it is complete chaos, and I see it on the street every day, and it's getting worse and worse. Rodrigo, that, that, that is a question I wanted to ask, because we had a caller earlier who had made the comment that uh, El Paso, as well as other border towns, but specifically mentioning El Paso, uh, was being overrun. Would you characterize it that way, that El Paso is being overrun with this crisis? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're using local tax resources to uh, create uh, home centers for these people. In Fort Bliss, which is a military base here, I heard there were close to 4,000 juveniles there that uh, we don't know what to do with. There is uh, no people to receive them, and it, it, is, it is way out of control, most definitely. Do you think that these efforts that, say, uh, Governor Abbott has undertaken, uh, that he says are trying to draw attention to this problem, um, do, do you, what do you think of these efforts in sending some of these migrants to other places to get more attention to what is going on there? Do you think that uh, do you think it's working that more people are now paying attention to what is happening in Texas? Well, definitely, there's uh, national attention now, and we're seeing. Uh, how they deal with them. You know, when New York has uh, 10,000 times more budget than El Paso, and, in, and, create, and saying that 400 migrants that have been sent there is a crisis, well, come to us where we're dealing with 2,000 a day here. I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but <laughs> how exaggerated they are, but, but we're getting a lot of influx of people that we don't know what to do with. 
it is clearly something that, you know, as you, someone's being there in El Paso, it is something that is obviously visible to you. Yes, it is. Great, Rodrigo, thank you uh, so much for that phone call. I think an important perspective to add to uh, some of the conversations we had earlier. Um, Brooke, I want to go to you very briefly here. Uh, you know, the, the kind of guest worker program that he talked about, I think even, I, I'm just thinking on the right, is this going to run into problems where the right is now torn apart, that you do have people who are friendlier to the idea of immigration, but you have this national conservative movement who is essentially on a platform of there should be no legal immigration at all? Yeah, I was actually just dialoguing with someone yesterday who uh, claims to represent the national conservative platform, and they want to halt all legal and illegal immigration for the next 10 years. So this certainly is going to come up against them, um, and it will splinter the right, because this is a conversation where some on the right are absolutely in favor of this sort of worker program and uh, making it easier for people to cross the border to work seasonally. Uh, but at the heart of the issue is really going to be uh, do we do we create that sort of pathway through meaningful congressional reform this next session? I mean, like, can this happen soon? Because right now we do have a labor shortage. Yeah. It is looming. So that's essential right now. Yeah. Uh, and as we said earlier, it doesn't seem that there's a lot of movement on this, unfortunately. We'll be back in just a moment on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. this space gave me. We've never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom, having that taken away from them. I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oak Brook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I own freedom. My life. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov.
No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> It's been 23 minutes since I ate. <laughs> I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. And one of our previous callers did call back and say that uh, the New York Times account had approximately 2,000 people a day coming into El Paso. Uh, I don't have that number or that report from the New York Times in front of me, so I will uh, let all of our intelligent listeners out there go search out that information. You know, if only there were some device that we could look this stuff up on. Uh, but To, to continue on that point, as, you know, we saw beautiful El Paso. For those watching the live stream, we saw a shot there of uh, of El Paso, Texas. Uh, you know, Calvin, I want to come back to you on this. So the I, I I disclosed some of my cards here earlier, where I said I think this whole thing is uh, at minimum gross, and and the allegations about uh, possible deception that the people empowered by Ron DeSantis to make the Martha's Vineyard part of this happen may have engaged in certainly raises other questions. There are things that uh, the unitary executive can do to begin to help ameliorate the problems that are going on in the southern border. There are some unilateral policy changes that could be made uh, that we could return to the remain in Mexico uh, policy that existed there. And again, if if we're not going to engage in these kinds of political stunts to perhaps get the attention of Joe Biden to get some action taken, if let's take the stories we've been told on face value, 2000 people a day coming into El Paso, certainly indicative of a crisis. And the, it seems to be that they're not getting a lot of relief. What what is necessary then to get the the president to act on this? I'm going to be honest, Eric, I don't have an answer for for that particular question. Um, the the question that I would posit, and, and this is going to sound like hey, someone jog, dodging the question um, it, and, and positing a different answer to a question you didn't ask. Um, but it's because I think of this differently. Um, I don't think of this necessarily from policy standpoint. I think of it uh, as uh, who are we as a people kind of question. And do we find, I often hear like all, all the political stuff I hear going on. I mean, Roe v. Wade was overturned and, and evangelical Christians rejoiced and people talk about being an ostensibly Christian nation and all those kinds of things. And I have a degree in Christian ministry and, and, and religion. And, and so I think about that. Uh, when, when I think about this particular topic, I'm thinking about it in terms of, okay, well, if that's who we say we are, 
if if we do really take that perspective, how do we welcome the stranger? How do we think about the stranger? Like I don't like even using the words of uh, illegal immigrant because again, like I said this earlier, it makes us think of people as doing something criminal from the moment they're in the country, whether they're coming from Venezuela or whether they're coming from Mexico or whether they're coming from Lithuania, right? It, do, it doesn't really matter. So so for me, I don't have an answer to the, you know, how, how do we fix this? How do we, how do we address this? I'm trying to figure out once people are here, how do we approach them? How do we treat them? How do we treat the foreigner, the sojourner, the stranger to a country that says, whether it's a political, uh, political term or not, or, or, or what, uh, we're a nation of immigrants. Whether that's true or not, people can disagree on that one way or the other. But how are we treating people once they are here? How are we conceiving of people once before they even come into the country? Are, are you saying someone is an illegal immigrant or an undocumented worker? Well, Those me, are politically loaded, loaded before terms. I go to and, Brooke, and that's really the bigger thing for me. Before I go to Brooke, let me ask you a pointed question on that, uh, which I think the, the response would be that um, despite what one may think of what is the, the current laws governing mm-hmm. coming into this country, they are laws that are in place and they are people who are circumventing the laws that establish a process for coming here by crossing the border, which is not the prescribed way of doing so, which would be breaking a law, which would be indicative of illegality. Um, I'm not imagining you disagree with that. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm curious as to then your perspective on is it just a the connotation that surrounds illegal immigrant? Because you know we, we could disagree with the no, laws, no, 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 no. but they no. have broken a law and coming here. Sure, uh, and I also am a big fan of someone who everyone pretends to be a big fan of on Martin Luther King Day, uh, and that's Martin Luther King. Uh, <laughs> uh, an unjust law is no law at all, right? Uh, and and I'm not saying that we don't need to have laws, and we don't need to have uh, Im- you know laws surrounding immigration. Laws are a good thing, but they do tell us what we believe and think as a people. So if someone is coming here, if a mother and child are coming here, we talk about hey, let's make abortion illegal, or we just sent that back to the states. And we're talking about a mother coming across a border with her child. I think it's terrible to automatically criminalize that woman rather than think about hey, she's escaping something and bring her child to a better life. So for me, it is about how do we view these laws? Are they just laws? Are they unjust laws? I'm not against laws, but let's think about the laws that are in place before we start judging the people that are violating said laws. Brooke, what at minimum, quickly here, because we're coming to the end of the program, what at minimum should uh, President Biden do in response to this crisis in your view? I think he should stop playing political football with it. I think that he I agree. can be compassionate toward the immigrants while also being compassionate towards those who are living in these border towns that are having a very difficult time with this influx and trying to grapple with the challenges that have been created because the federal government has not enforced the immigration laws that are already on the books. And I think that's at the heart of the matter is President Biden needs to get more serious about that first. 
You know, I just I keep thinking that it would be so nice if we as a polity were capable of addressing political problems that exist without the necessity for the kind of you know stunt has been a used that word that's been used quite regularly about this. And I, I think I would agree with its use. It would be nice if we could uh, address problems like this without having uh, that kind of provocation being necessary to get us talking about it. With that said, I want to thank Brooke Medina. I want to thank Calvin Moore. I want to thank uh, Bruce Dumont for giving me the opportunity to fill in for him this evening on Beyond the Beltway. We'll see you again soon. back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. 
For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. When you're... 